Welcome to Me Time, the podcast for women in midlife who've been taking care of everyone else and now say, it's my turn to take care of me. I'm Kim Aceto, health and self-care coach for women in midlife and your host. Thank you for spending your precious me time with me right now. Enjoy the show. Okay, so today I'm here with Maggie and Abby, aka the Anxiety Sisters. Let me tell you about each one of them. Let's start with Maggie. Maggie Sarachek's expertise is counseling and teaching people to find strength through community. As a social worker in a New York City high school, she specialized in the development of youth leadership as well as counseling individuals and families. Maggie has also worked as a special education advocate, helping families to access services for their children and teens. She became a full-fledged anxiety sister in her mid-20s while dealing with debilitating anxiety attacks. Since becoming an, an anxiety sister, she has become the wife of an anxious husband and the mother of two anxious kids, proving that anxiety is indeed contagious. And we have Abby Greenberg. Abby Greenberg started talking at nine months old and hasn't stopped since. She's gotten two degrees in the communications field, as well as a certificate in adult education and a master's in fine arts and creative writing. In addition to her more than 25-year career as a professor, Abby has served as a divorce mediator, a Myers-Briggs trainer, a motivational speaker, and a communication consultant, as well as a teacher development coordinator for several in educational institutions. When she's not teaching, writing, researching, or panicking, she spends time with her anxiety sister, Maggie, her anxious husband, and her three anxious kids. Welcome, both of you. Hi. Hi. Great to have you both. Oh, I like having two you. people. I've only done it a few yeah. times, but it's kind of fun. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, let me, I have so many things to ask you. Um, but let's start with the first uh, question I ask every first time guest, which is, and I'd like to hear from both of you what do you enjoy doing during your me time? Well, I probably have a strange answer, but relatively. This? So, we this, no. this, this is Abby. This is Abby. Sorry. Okay. Yes, or abs or whatever. Um, I um, Relatively late in life, I found out that I am a science wonk. I never knew this, but I happen to love science, particularly neuroscience. So in my free time, I take neuroscience courses and learn how to read imaging and read studies. Mm -hmm. Nice, nice. All right, what about you, Maggie? Um, so... I love anything to do with water of any kind. So swimming, being around water, being in water. Um, and I also sort of like to do small creative things, whether that's crocheting or, um, I don't know, just trying, trying new things that are creative. Um, I think all those things are, and then both of us, I have to say, really like being outside we both love walking outside and hiking and that kind of stuff because that gives us a lot of help with maintaining a less anxious life right right oh yeah that's great that's great so let's talk about your relationship because you call yourselves the anxiety sisters you're not actually sisters but you're really good friends you've been friends for a really long time give us the the short version of your your friendship how it started um well 
one thing I want to say is we we generally fight like sisters, even <laughs> though we are really just great friends. Um, but um, we met in college. And uh, we were both at the University of Pennsylvania and Abby likes to say that we noticed that we both had these anxious looks on our faces and that must have been what drew us to each other. And um, we became really close friends, although we both had anxiety, we didn't necessarily know we had anxiety, we just felt all these different symptoms. Um, and you know, after we graduated college, we stayed each other's real touchstones. And, um, you know, our friendship just, we made a lot of effort to keep the friendship very, very strong, making sure we were visiting each other and spending time together. And, you know, we both sort of went on this whole anxiety journey together. Um, so that kept us even, even more, um, even more connected and found that we were each other's real best cheerleader, the person that understood what we were going through. So we really ended up relying on each other a lot. Wow, that's great. And so Abby, you know, how did you decide, how did you two decide to call yourselves the Anxiety Sisters and kind of talk about your experiences and as a result, help so many other people with this? Well, we should say that um, our experience uh, is as sisters, even though we, we aren't biologically related, we, that's how we experience our relationship with each other. So we, we, were, we felt like we were sisters from almost the minute that we met. But how we became the Anxiety Sisters is that despite the fact that we've both uh, you know, had gone to graduate school and have, have initials after our names and we've been trained counselors and educators and researchers, we first and foremost identify as anxiety sufferers. And, you know, we like to t say that we've not only walked the walk, we've huddled, heaved, hurled, sweated, and palpitated through our life. <laughs> and, and we've done that together. So um, we, that that's sort of, you know, where we come from in terms of how we self-identify is as anxiety sufferers and as sisters. And since we work together, we are the anxiety sisters. All right. I love it. Okay. I have so many questions to ask and, um, I don't know much about anxiety. So, um, you know, you might ask, um, you might answer a few of my questions, um, you know, through your sure. answers. So, uh, let's just start with this question that I have is anxiety a bad thing. We believe anxiety is part of being human. If you're a human being, you have experienced anxiety. Now, maybe you haven't had an anxiety disorder, but you definitely have experienced that feeling of, you know, your body getting ready to either fight, flight, fight, fly, flee, or freeze, fight, flight, or freeze. Um, so you know that experience, that stress response that the body has. And all human beings have it in the same way that they experience anger and sadness and happiness and excitement and embarrassment. It's just part of being human. We, we don't think it's a bad thing to feel anxiety. What we think is concerning is when anxiety starts making the decisions for you. In other words, when you start limiting who you'll see, what you'll do, where you'll go based on your anxiety, when your anxiety is in the driver's seat, that's something that we wanna, we wanna change. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So you mentioned, um, fight, flight, flee, right? Um, fight, so fight, fight or freeze, right? Right. Freeze. I <laughs> forgot, hard, freeze. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think many of us have heard of fight or flight, but then 
freeze and fly. Those are, those are kind of maybe new for some people. So, um, you know, how do you know you're experiencing anxiety? Like, you know, we're going through our lives and we're doing our thing. Um, how do you know when you're starting to feel like that? For me and Mags, and I think for many of the people that we've talked to over the years, many of the thousands of people that we've interviewed, uh, they didn't know it was anxiety at first. They thought that they had some kind of disorder physically. In other words, I, myself, I had the cardiac symptoms, the whole Bayer aspirin commercial, you know, with the pounding heart and the dizziness and the left arm going numb. So I did not assume that was anxiety. I assumed that was heart disease. And Mags had a terrible stomach. She couldn't keep anything down. She was nauseated all the time. She assumed that she had some kind of problem in her stomach. And I think we both assumed that one day, whatever we had would eventually kill us because the symptoms were pretty awful. Uh, it was it was after our decade of the ists where we literally saw every ist that exists, like a therapist, a psychiatrist, a nutritionist, an acupuncturist, a past life regressionist, anyone who would take our money, basically. After seeing any number of professionals, we finally realized, we ruled out the physical stuff and then began to realize, oh, I guess when they say this is anxiety, maybe they're telling the truth. It, it's not always intuitive because you don't think that something that's occurring in your brain can create such havoc in your body. Now, when you say like, in- it, it becomes a bad thing. Anxiety becomes a bad thing when it starts making decisions for you. What do you mean by that? Like what would be an example of anxiety making a decision versus you not being anxious? And I guess, um, well, um, this is Maggie. And mm-hmm. I, I guess what, what we're talking about um, is that, you know, when you have anxiety disorder, um, one of the things you want to do is not feel anxious because it's so uncomfortable to feel anxious. So you start to avoid places or situations where you think you might, for example, have a panic attack or might get very anxious. So, you know, for me, that meant one time driving to a really dear, you know, a friend's wedding. And, um, and I kept saying, and I kept saying like, Oh, I'm so nauseous. I'm so sick. I'm so sick. And, I was like, there's no way I can make it. It was about three hours away. And I did a U-turn and, you know, just doing that U-turn on the way home, I started to feel better. (laughs) And then I realized like, oh, that was anxiety. I didn't actually have the stomach flu. But what happens then is that that feeling is so bad. Like the next time you have to go to a wedding, you're like, oh my God, is that going to happen? Or am I going to be really sick? Do I want to go? Is this worth it? And that starts to happen with a lot of different, you know, um, events and opportunities. And so it becomes kind of easier to say like, oh, no, I don't fly. You know, I don't go on planes or, you know, I'm just going to I'm going to take a job that that seems not too intense. So I won't I won't be overwhelmed. It's kind of making your decisions based on trying to avoid being anxious. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Yeah. So we don't, so where, where does anxiety come from? You know, I mean, um, I am guessing going to that wedding, there was something that an experience you had that was negative that would make this experience. Uh, well, that's, you know. that's, you know, sometimes that can be true, like that mm-hmm. you have a trigger, you know, from bad experience, but, you know, for example, I didn't have a bad experience at a wedding and, but what was happening at the time for me was I was becoming more and more agoraphobic, which means 
it does it means that it became anxiety for provoking for me to be out of the safety zone of my house you know and mm-hmm. and so this was several hours away and so you know traveling in cars was very anxiety provoking for me and being far away from home um was very anxiety provoking for me and then what happens often is that you have it when people have say a panic attack somewhere they're like okay well now the movies are someplace that I might have a panic attack so I don't want to go to the movies anymore or I don't want to go on a car trip anymore because I had a panic attack and that's sort of it sort of happens very slowly, but that's how our anxiety starts making decisions for us, as we say, about where we'll go and what we'll do and who we'll see. Can I throw in some neuroscience? I, you sound excited to do so. So yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, because you did ask where anxiety comes from. And of course, mm-hmm. that gets me all excited because it comes from the brain. <laughs> um, it, there's, there's a part of our brain called the amygdala, which acts as our, our body's lookout. And that, that part of our brain is paying attention to everything going on around us, all the stimuli and asking the question constantly, am I safe? Because the brain is wired for survival. So the brain is making sure that, you know, the brain doesn't care if you're comfortable, it wants you to be safe. So your amygdala is feeling out the environment to make sure that you're not in any kind of danger. In an anxiety sufferer, the amygdala misfires and decides that you're in danger even in non-dangerous moments, like standing and minding your own business at the grocery store or pumping gas or sitting in the carpool line. Suddenly you're feeling panicky and you don't know why. Your amygdala has misfired and alerted your body that you're in danger. And so the body immediately, your adrenal glands start releasing cortisol and adrenaline and your body gets gets prepared to either fight an enemy or run away from an enemy or freeze and, and, and hope the enemy doesn't eat you. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's what's happening in the body. It actually comes, you can see an anxiety reaction in an MRI. Mm-hmm. So physiologically, is it similar to a stress response, an anxiety response and a stress response? Are those synonymous? Very much so. It's, it's that fight, flight, or flee. I don't know why I can't say the three, the three Fs today. Freeze. freeze. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fight, flight, or freeze response. It's, that, it, it's a sympathetic response from our nervous system where our body, our digestive system shuts down, our big muscle groups, it sends you know, blood and energy to our big muscle groups so we can run away. And all the things that would happen in your body if you were, let's say, being chased by something, that's the sensations you start to get. Right. Right. Yep. I felt that. I feel that at times. Yes. So, um, let me ask you about women as that is the, our audience here. Uh, you shared before that, uh, women are twice as likely to suffer from anxiety than men. Why? (laughs) Well, there's a, so there's a biological reason and then there's more of a sociological reason. So the biological reason is that the female sex hormone estrogen is directly linked with the neurotransmitter serotonin, which regulates our moods. So, and it's a direct relationship. The more estrogen in your body, the more available your serotonin is for you to to have your moods regulated. And so with women, we know estrogen fluctuates all the time in our cycles, right? It fluctuates, you know, in puberty particularly, but then 
throughout our menstrual cycles, it fluctuates. It fluctuates when we're pregnant, when we're postpartum, when we're going through menopause. There's, it's just the estrogen levels in our body are constantly changing. And so that is, is one link that they think that maybe for men, serotonin stays more level because they don't have that fluctuation of estrogen like we do. So that's a biological explanation. Um, and then of course, the, the, there's a sociological thought that you know women are more likely to report being anxious. Um, I think that you know in our society, it's still something that is perceived as weakness. And so for men particularly, you know, that they are not going to readily admit to something they think will make them look like they have a failing of some sort. And I'm not saying that women are eager to admit a failing, but I think that there's more of a stigma for men around the mental health issues and the rough women. There's still too much stigma for women. And that's why Maggie and I do what we do, because we really, you know, we believe you can live happily with anxiety, but not with the shame that our society unfairly puts on people who experience things like anxiety and depression. But, you know, a, a lot of men that we talk to, and by the way, 30% of our 200 and something thousand member community identify as male. So we really are the anxiety community for all genders. We just, uh, it's just anxiety community is not as catchy as anxiety sisters. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, a lot of men we talk to will say things like, well, no, I don't have anxiety, but you know, I get really stressed at work. And when I come home, I need to like have a drink or two before I can even talk to my wife. Mm-hmm. And so that that's a different experience of anxiety than maybe a woman might have. Right. Right. Interesting. So let's talk about um, you say anxiety is contagious. <laughs> tell, tell, tell me more about that. What does that mean? Well, I mean, um, on the biological piece, we, we sort of all have these mirror neurons. And so when we're feeling something, the people around us um, can sense what we're feeling and you know as as biological beings we imitate each other because we all want to be part of the tribe um very unconsciously we do that but also um if you've been around someone who's very very anxious um or someone who's feeling you know other ways like very happy or whatever their feeling is, you notice that it's really hard not to take on some pieces of that feeling. Um, You know, if you have a child who comes home from school and is really anxious and worried, um, I think most parents know it's pretty hard to sort of completely separate from that anxiety. Or if your partner comes home from work and has had a really stressful and anxious day, that reverberates in the house. You know, as human beings, we really are meant to live in sort of groups and and be part of a tribe. And so we really respond to the feelings other people are having, particularly anxiety, because as Abby said before, our brain's job, our whole job is to keep us safe. That is why the brain is there to keep us safe. And so, you know, when someone in our tribe doesn't feel safe, we respond to it. Interesting. Yeah. I was just going to ask, you know, if there's a calm person in the room and an an anxious person in the room, uh, so you're, what you're saying is the, the calm person is more likely to become anxious rather than the anxious person more likely to become calm. We we tend to go toward the, the the anxiety. 
Um, I think it depends on the people. <laughs> I think it depends on, you know, because sometimes um, if someone is calm and also very empathetic um, toward anxiety, they may be able to help um, the person who's more anxious um, sort of stabilize in terms of their anxiety. So it just, it sort of depends on the relationship between the two people and the empathy that is there. So it, it really, it's very, it very much depends. Right. If someone says to the, to the anxious person, like, oh, just calm down or just relax, then you're going to make the anxious person so much more anxious um, in most cases, you know. Um, so it's really a matter of how um, how people understand what's happening for each other. Mm -hmm. So why why is uh, is it is it that it's not validating to the other person how they're feeling? It's just trying to fix them by saying like, relax. Yeah, I think that it's not validating, and um, I think it's also very shaming because when mm. you're, particularly when you have an anxiety disorder, you're not just like a little bit stressed or, but you have a real anxiety disorder. It it really feels like um, this is this is happening in your brain, you know, and as a result in your whole body. So just relax is not, you know, it's like saying to someone who has a broken leg you know, if you don't think about it, you can go running. Don't mm -hmm. think about your broken leg. You can run. I'm sure you can. You know, it's, it's sort of completely dismissive of the fact that this is, you know, we say this term mental health, which abs and I don't love because it doesn't mean much, you know, you really can, anxiety is really located in the brain and we can feel it throughout the body. And so, it's not a, it's a disorder. It's really not a decision to feel anxious that you can just turn off. So, okay. I'm really interested in how we can try to prevent, if possible, you tell me how mm -hmm. can we, we can try to prevent anxiety from making decisions for us. Cause like you said, we all have, we all get anxious at times, but when it starts to disrupt our lives, we miss out on things that we would like to do maybe because we're afraid we're going to get anxious or have a panic attack. How do we start to manage that? What can we do? We know a really good book. <laughs> <laughs> Could it be your book? <laughs> I mean, there's, there is no short answer to that question because mm -hmm. Mags and I don't believe, we believe that one size does not fit all. Uh, and so we don't believe that there's any one strategy or technique that will work for everyone. So it is our belief that you need an arsenal of tools and techniques. And the truth is, is that what works on Monday may not work on Tuesday. So it's really important to have, you know, a, a tool chest of strategies and techniques. But, you know, we, we talk about everything from breathing and meditation to spending more time in nature, to working with animals, to, I mean, literally uh, floating therapy, just hundreds of suggestions for how to manage the anxiety. Um, in our book. I would say a good place to start that Abby and I would say is one sort of accepting that what you're feeling is anxiety. And that's a really long process because, you know, most of us, our anxiety is so physical, you know, so it's hard to accept like, oh, I'm anxious. So I have a rash. 
or I'm anxious so I can't stop itching or I can't stop burping or farting or my stomach feels crazy. So, you know, that first step that we really talk about is accepting that, yeah, this is anxiety and um, not trying consciously to stop ourselves from feeling it because we know that what we pay attention to grows. And that is very, very true with anxiety. So the whole idea is that we're not going to fight against it. We're going to learn how to manage it, but we're not going to start to fight it because you won't win. Hmm. So you realize you're getting anxious. You want to be aware of it. You, you want to acknowledge it and not try to dismiss it or try to get rid of it. Right. We, we don't want to say like, how can I stop feeling this way? We, we kind of liken it to being in a riptide, you know, in, mm -hmm. in, if you're an ocean swimmer, where if you get caught in a riptide, um, those people that don't swim in oceans very often, or don't know the ocean, what they'll try to, a riptide is like pushing them out to sea. Right. Mm -hmm. And what they try to do, um, is to swim into shore again. Um, because they're like, oh, I'm going further and further out. Let me swim to shore. And unfortunately, this is how a lot of people get exhausted and ultimately drown. And what you're supposed to do in a riptide is wait, basically wait it out. You know, sometimes swim parallel to shore, um, but not fight the riptide because it's just going to exhaust you. And so we say a similar thing, particularly with panic, but with any kind of anxiety, which is it will release you. Um, this too shall pass. But if you're actively trying to fight against it, it all it's going to do is exhaust you. So, you know, a lot of our techniques are aimed at helping people um, keep themselves centered and keep themselves grounded and um, keep themselves maybe even a little distracted. But Give them something to do while they're realizing that, you know what, this too shall pass. I will get through this. Hmm. That was a really great analogy of the riptide because I have been in one of those and I have, obviously I did not drown, but I was yeah. very exhausted trying to fight that being taken um, into sea, which is a huge right. um, uh, fear of mine. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. No, well, it should mm -hmm. be, you know, it's like, right. yeah, that's like, it's like, it is there and it's, and it's something, you know, I have a friend who's a lifeguard at a, was a lifeguard at a beach for many years. And, you know, he always talked about how many people drown in that situation because, mm -hmm. you know, they think, let me just swim in. That's your natural mm -hmm. inclination, right? Let me just fight this. And, you know, more experienced ocean swimmers learn that there's really no fighting it. You sort of have to wait for it to pass. Wow. You have to ride the wave. You do ah. have to ride the wave. Literally, yeah. Figuratively mm -hmm. and literally, yeah. Yes, yes. Okay, great. Well, you mentioned you have a book. It's called The Anxiety Sisters Survival Guide. I'm guessing you can uh, find more information on your website, theanxietysisters.com? Yes. Okay, great. Yeah. And now you also have a podcast, which uh, I want to spend a minute or two talking about. Uh, share a bit about your podcast, which I know has grown tremendously since the uh publishing of your book. So what do you talk about in your podcast? Who's it for? Give us some information. 
our podcast is called The Spin Cycle with the Anxiety Sisters. Perfect. Uh, because we really believe <laughs> that anxiety feels very much like being in the spin cycle of your washing machine. <laughs> so that's that's the metaphor. Um, we we do two types of podcasts. We do we interview guests, um, and we've had some fabulous guests in the mental health field, you know, with specialties in anything from obsessive compulsive disorder to social anxiety. Uh, We've talked to uh, people in the field of pharmacogenomics and and the advances that are happening in terms of personalizing medicine for anxiety. And we've talked to comedians like Jen Kirkman. We've, We've had some really great guests. And then we also do something called BFF cast which is where we spend about 20 to 30 minutes, just the two of us talking about something that's coming up in our community that particular month that, that seems to be a, a hot topic in the anxiety world. And we, we try to really come up with very concrete strategies for people to, to help manage. Mm-hmm. Great. Wonderful. And you do a couple of episodes a month. Is that right? That's right. All right. Excellent. Now, what, what is the name of that again? I don't think I have the name of, of your podcast, the spin sisters. The no, spin the, cycle. Oh, spin cycle. <laughs> anxiety with sisters. The anxiety with the sisters. Cycle. Yeah. The spin, spin cycle. cycle with the anxiety sisters. Oh, got it. Okay. With the anxiety sisters. I'll make sure I put that in the show notes too. So people can go and listen to that. Um, so I'll have your website in the show notes. I will also have your, uh, you're on Facebook, you're on Instagram and uh, people can connect with you there. Um, so Abby, Maggie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I think you hit most of my questions. I know when we hang up, I'm going to have more, but um, I would love to have you back if you are interested to talk more about this stuff. Um, yes, a hundred percent. We'd love to come back. And, oh, great. you know, a lot of what we do is very specific. We give people very practical and specific tools and techniques. And we'd be happy to come back and talk about anything you want, but also do that. That would be great. Well, thank you again so much, you two. Really appreciate it. Oh, we appreciate it. for having us. Thanks for listening. If you find the Me Time Midlife podcast valuable, please tell your friends about it. And if you haven't yet, you can also subscribe to the podcast or leave a positive rating or review, which is always greatly appreciated. If you're on Facebook, you can stay up to date with the latest episodes by following my coaching page, Transformation Wellness for Women. And finally, if you've been taking care of everyone else and now say, it's my turn to take care of me, I invite you to join our Me Time Midlife community on Facebook, where we continue the conversations we have here on the podcast. Simply go to metimemidlifepodcast.com and click on Me Time Midlife Community to learn more and join us today. It's an honor to produce this podcast for you. So thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next time.